0: In the spring of 1984, Lorenzo Odone was diagnosed with adrenoleukodystrophy, otherwise known as ALD. This is a disease which is inherited only by boys from their mothers. It strikes these boys sometime between the ages of 5 and 10. It quickly renders them blind, Deaf, mute, and unstable in terms of the matters of walking and other things having to do with balance. Death follows this very grueling experience for such children. The instability and the other defects which accompany this disease do so because the illness strips the myelin which is the covering of the nerves, it just completely strips them, that is the nerves, of the protection received by the myelin sheaths in which the nerves find themselves. The enzyme, which should metabolize excess saturated fats, is defective in the bodies of these boys, leading to the liquefaction of the white matter in the brain. Therefore, it's deterioration. The news about Lorenzo's disease sent his parents on a quest to understand ALD. They left no stone unturned. His father, Augusto, was an employee of the World Bank. He was a very astute man, a very bright man, and a very motivated man. His wife was devastated as was he when they received the news of the diagnosis of their son Lorenzo. They were then serving in East Africa in the Comoro Islands in the Indian Ocean. He said to her as he was consoling her, and he said, We must find a strategy. Remember, dear, that when we knew we were coming to the Comoro Islands, we began to study the culture. We wanted to know about the climate. We did a lot of research, so once we got there, we would be prepared to deal with those things which were new and different in a constructive way. We must do the same with this disease in order to seek some sort of cure for our dear Lorenzo. They took him to Boston from the Comoros for treatment. Mr. Odone interviewed the world's foremost researcher on the subject of ALD. Together, he and his wife went to the National Institute of Health at the Bethesda, Maryland Center. And there, they spent literally hundreds of hours poring over every document they could find that had something to say about saturated fats. They even made a trip to the University of Wisconsin Veterinary School, where there was a lot of work being done on dogs which had been demyelinated to see if they could find some help there. Augusto himself traveled alone to Rome for a symposium on the whole subject of myelin. The Odone's search for insights was not without scorn. They were undaunted, however, in the face of those who criticized them. Augusto, who describes himself as a simple man, had no formal training in science. Yet his relentless pursuit of a cure for his son yielded a marvelous discovery. He discovered that erucic acid will reduce the saturated fats in ALD boys to normal levels. He actually wrote a paper And this is the title of it. It's pretty daunting for me to even try to remember it. The Interplay of Monosaturated and Saturated Fatty Acid. This was described by a world-renowned chemist in Great Britain as a brilliant piece of work. I'm impressed with the intensity of Lorenzo's parents, both of whom now are deceased, And you might wonder what happened to him. Some of you know the answer to the question. He lived 22 more years. The average lifespan of a child once diagnosed with ALD is two years. This boy lived 22 years. His parents have gone out of this world too. His father after him, his mother before him. But their intensity of investigation of this disease in order to save Lorenzo impress me indelibly. It reminds me, however, of another group of people who were filled with this kind of intensity in their search for something even more valuable than a cure for ALD. Would you take your Bible and turn with me to the book of First Peter? And we're going to pick up where we last were in the book of First Peter chapter 1. We're finally going to finish this great eulogy that Peter writes under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, beginning with verse 3 and concluding with verse 12. Today we're going to look at verses 10 through 12 of First Peter chapter 1. First Peter chapter 1, verse 10. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful search and inquiry seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. This Passage that we've been considering for the past three weeks, it's very clear that the Apostle Peter was mesmerized. He was enamored by the salvation which had come to him through Jesus Christ. We find ourselves at the third time in this eulogy that we have in verses 3 through 12, where he's dealing with salvation. And at each turn, he has some new insight about the salvation which is ours in Christ Jesus, our Lord. It's interesting that as he deals with this, he doesn't compare his gospel, the salvation that was his as a part of his being the recipient of the gospel of Jesus Christ and a teacher of the gospel, he does not compare his representation of the gospel with what the prophets wrote. However, he draws to the attention of his readers, and please receive this as being written to you today. This is for you and me too. The Spirit of God would draw our attention as He did through the writing of Peter to that first group of aliens who received it, as they are described by Him in the introduction to this great book. He draws their attention in their affliction. And remember, they were under great suffering. There are two words I mentioned last week that clearly indicate the emphases of the book of 1 Peter. Suffering and hope. He was giving them hope when He talks about the salvation that is theirs. And you, perhaps, are suffering in some way. And we, as a body of believers, not just in this church, but in the United States, may be entering into a period of time of great suffering and persecution. We don't know that. We don't need to borrow trouble. I'm no prophet. But what we do know is we need to know how to deal with trouble when it comes. Whether it's trouble that's isolated in our individual lives Or something that's more widespread. And the Apostle Peter, in seeking to give hope to these who are suffering, draws their attention and shows them the importance and the majesty, the magnificence of their salvation. I hope if you leave here today with nothing more, you will leave with a renewed appreciation of your salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's think about what he's dealt with so far in this eulogy by quick review. He's talked about the rich mercy, the great mercy of God to us through Jesus Christ by causing us to be born again to a living hope. We have hope because of our salvation beyond anything that's imaginable. We have this kind of incredible hope, We have an inheritance that's imperishable. It's undefiled, that is unstained, and it will not fade away. And it's a great inheritance which is reserved for us in heaven. And we saw in this passage, the word reserved mean, means it cannot be taken away. There's no cancellation of the reservation that God has secured for us in heaven. And then, if that were not enough... He is protecting us by His power. God Himself is. What a wonderful, incredible salvation which is ours. So what do these verses teach us regarding possible responses to the salvation? Well, I've already hinted at the first one. It doesn't take a rocket science to figure it out when you look at these verses. And it is the proper response is that of intensity. We see that these prophets searched intently to understand what they were prophesying. Can you imagine? They really didn't fully understand. They had some idea, but they didn't quite understand. So let's take a look at these verses in detail, beginning with verse 10. As to the salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful search and inquiry. The word translated careful search means intense investigation that considers a matter from every conceivable angle. These prophets were researching incredible. They were investigating because they wanted to understand every aspect the word which is translated careful search or made careful search, it's one word in the original language, and the word translated inquiry, both begin with the same prepositional phrase making up a compound word. These two words only appear here in all of our New Testament. And the introductory prepositional phrase suggests the thoroughness of their careful search and the thoroughness of their inquiry. Now, let's look at the word inquiry. This word indicates the search for something which is hidden. For instance, it was used outside the New Testament to describe animals smelling for their prey. Some of you have dogs, and some of you walk your dogs, and your walk is somewhat interrupted frequently, probably. Why? Because the dog wants to smell everything. Unbelievable. And some of the things they want to smell are not too savory, I might add. I'm glad that they have a hundred times greater capacity for smelling than I do. Because some of the things they get sidetracked by actually smell bad to me. But the idea is an animal sniffing out its prey. Doing an investigation for something that is hidden. This word was used to describe the evaluation of a crime scene in biblical times, to try to determine the details of a crime that had been committed. It was also used not only to describe that which was hidden, the search for something which was hidden, but also something that was valuable. For instance, it would be used to describe miners who were digging deep into the soil, into the earth, maybe deep underground, to find some sort of precious metal or precious mineral in the earth. That's the idea conveyed. It was also used in this way regarding academics. Plato used it of scientific or philosophical inquiry. Philo, the great Jewish theologian of the first century, used it to describe rabbis searching the Scriptures to understand the Scriptures. Now, the subject of these prophets' search was our salvation, including the grace. Look again at verse 10. The prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful search and inquiry. And he goes on to explain what this amounts to in verse 11. Seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicated as he predicted The sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Now, fix your eyes for a moment on the sufferings. Who predicted the sufferings of Jesus? The Holy Spirit did, and He gave that to the prophets, who in turn wrote those things down for us. Are there anything, are there any references, rather, in the prophets to the sufferings of Jesus? Can you think of any right offhand? Isaiah chapter fifty-two, verse twelve, to Isaiah fifty-three, thirteen—tremendous references to the sufferings of the Lord Jesus Christ. It makes one wonder how anyone who is of the Jewish descent could open that song, that Isaiah passage, and read it and not see this is Christ. It's unbelievable the precision with which. The prophet Isaiah predicted this hundreds of years before Christ. What about Psalm 22, written by David even before Isaiah? Read Psalm 22. It is phenomenal what David wrote. And David was, in a sense, a prophet too. He's talking about the sufferings of Christ. What were those sufferings? They included the Garden of Gethsemane. His being deserted by all of his closest associates. His being Tried unjustly. His being beaten. His having a crown of thorns jammed down upon His head. His being spit upon. Mocked. All these things that happened to Him as a result of His going to the cross and dying for us. It's the sufferings that He went through. These are predicted by the prophets. And not only that, under inspiration of the Spirit, I might add, but also the glories to follow. That would include the resurrection, for sure. But that would include the ascension and the session at the right hand of the Father by Jesus. It would include those things. And also His coming again, His reigning on earth during the millennial period, and then His judging the world at the end of time. The glories are mentioned also in the psalms: Psalm 2, Psalm 16, Psalm 110 refer to various aspects of these glories. And the location of their search, these prophets, where did they search? They searched their own writings, for one thing. But they undoubtedly searched the writings of the prophets who predated them. We know the Bible says about Moses that he was a great prophet, Moses. So they would have access to Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And they would have studied carefully. They would have searched in this way because they knew in those prophecies, in those Scriptures, there was a great mother load of insight into the Lord and into what He had promised to Father Abraham, that through Abraham and his offspring, the whole world would be blessed. And of course, without fully knowing it, they had some idea. This was a reference to the Messiah. That's suggested in this passage, for sure. But they didn't know the time, nor the person. They knew Messiah would be a man, But they didn't know what His name would be. They just knew Him as Messiah. They didn't know the time. Even Jesus says about His own second coming, that He nor the angels know the time when He would return. These people were like that. They knew the Messiah was coming, but they did not know when. So they searched the Scriptures diligently. Now, many of you are familiar with the prophet Daniel. And... Let me refer you, we're not going to take time to look these up, but at your leisure, look these references up. One in Daniel 7, verses 15 and 16. A second in Daniel 8, 16 and 17. And the third in Daniel 12, 8 and 9. Where Daniel is inquiring, he's wanting to know about these things that he writes. And he needed... Further, clarification. And he wanted to know. So the answer to their search was given by the Spirit of God Himself. Look at verse 12. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves. May I stop here just a moment? Notice that this is a passive verb, which means that these prophets didn't come up with this scheme of things regarding the Messiah, the details of the person of the Messiah, the things He would undergo. They didn't just think this up. They didn't have a symposium where they put their heads together, shared their thoughts, and came up with a way of describing the matter of the coming of the Messiah. It was revealed to them by the Spirit of God. Now, does that mean that their minds... We're not actively involved in this whole prophecy matter. There are those who have said in the past, and there's some who still believe this, in the theory of inspiration, we know we saw in the Bible from 2 Timothy chapter 3, all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the person of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So we know the Bible is inspired. Actually, the word is expired is what it really means. God breathed. The NIV captures the idea. It's more expired than inspired. but We won't go into that. We'll just continue with the common way of thinking inspired. God inspired the scriptures. And remember, when Paul wrote that to Timothy, when he wrote about inspiration of the scriptures, what scriptures was he talking about? Was he talking about the New Testament? No. What was he talking about? He's talking about the Old Testament, as we would call it. And you and I have every bit of information we need. The Holy Spirit can use it. If we only have the Old Testament, I'm glad we have the New Testament. I love the New Testament. But I love the Old Testament, too. It's all God's Word. All Scripture is God-breathed. Not just the New Testament. All Scripture is God-breathed, right? Well, these men and women in the Old Testament... They inquired of the Lord, and they made careful search to try to understand these things. So what we see is their minds were engaged, and the Spirit of God revealed things to them which they wrote down even before they understood it. But they continued to search. So when we think of inspiration of Scripture, I believe every word of God is inspired. I believe in what is called verbal plenary inspiration, means the words are fully inspired by God. We have a flawless document in its original that God wants to reveal truth to us through and does routinely by the Spirit of Christ. The Spirit of God does this for us. Awesome, isn't it? So let's understand that this matter of inspiration does not in any way eliminate... The mind of those who are prophets, but it integrates the revelation of God speaking to them and they in turn, as a result of their inquiry, gave us what we know as the Old Testament. Same with the New Testament writers as well. Not only did these prophets search intently regarding the matters of our salvation... But they served us and not themselves. Now, this is, blows me away. Look at verse 12 again. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. Do you believe this? Is this hard for you to get? It's hard for me to actually believe it. I know it's true. But to think that those prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, and Daniel, and Hosea, and Joel, and Amos, and Obadiah, and Jonah, and Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, Moses, Joshua, all the biblical writers, Samuel, all these writers, these Old Testament writers, they were predicting Christ. Jesus says when He appears to two of His disciples on the road to Emmaus after He's been raised from the dead, He begins with Moses, the Scripture says. He also goes to the prophets, and a little later in that same chapter of the Bible, he talks about he goes to the Psalms, and what does he do? He shows them himself in all of the writings. You were in mind as was I. Amazing. This is an amazing gospel. This is an amazing salvation that has been secured for us. Please never underestimate the privilege that you have, that you are one to whom God has revealed Jesus Christ by His Spirit. Let's look again at verse 12. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves. The word translated serving is the same word from which the word deacon comes. It's used in Acts chapter 6. It was used to describe a spreading of Table So that others could later feed on the food that was to be put on the table. It's like this great feast was prepared for you and me by these prophets. And the feast is a feast of the Word of God. So that we can come, any moment we can come to the Word of God, the Old Testament and Now the New Testament. And it's there for us. The Spirit of God has inspired it. And He will illuminate us as we come to learn from Him. What a wonderful blessing is ours. Because these prophets searched intently. But not only that, what did they do? They served us in this whole process. Going back to Lorenzo... His father, remember Augusto, after he'd made the wonderful discovery about erucic acid, which is an acid that helps to metabolize saturated fats. And this was a key to the composition of Lorenzo's oil to help treat boys with ALD. He mused to his wife, Do you think our discovery is more for other boys than for Lorenzo. And when these prophets got some insight, they wanted it for themselves, of course. They were descendants of Abraham and they knew the promise that God had given Abraham. They wanted to know. But it was more for us in a way than it was for them. Think about it. What an incredible discovery. So, the first group of people who were in Hence, when it comes to their searching these things, is followed by another group mentioned here in the latter part of verse 12, picking up in the middle, in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Preach the gospel. We think of evangelists when we think of this, do we not? I think of Ephesians chapter, where Paul writes and he says Christ gave these gifts to the church, some to be apostles, some to be prophets, and some to be evangelists. People with a gift from Christ, and Christ in turn gives those people to the church to evangelize the lost, to preach the good news. Typically, we think of people who do this in a way that we might describe as professionally like Franklin Graham, who came to El Paso three years ago in April and preached the gospel at UTEP, and many people came to know Christ there. Or like his father Billy Graham, who has preached to literally millions of people over the course of his lifetime. Or like Greg Laurie in his Harvest Crusades. There are a lot of people who have this gift of evangelism, but there are a lot of people who will never stand in a place like this, never speak to a group, But people in whom the Spirit of God dwells and whom are empowered by that same Spirit to effectively share Christ with others and others come to Jesus Christ. Do you know all of us who know Jesus have had the Spirit to come into our lives? Where did He come from? Jesus is the Holy Spirit will come in response to my request of the Father, that He will send another Helper to be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth. And He goes on to say, And the Helper whom the Father will send will teach you all things and bring you remembrance everything which I have said to you. So, Holy Spirit has come. He came to dwell in us. Jesus says about the Holy Spirit, You shall receive power when the Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, and the remotest part of the earth. That is the Spirit who lives in you and in me. And we have been given Him not just for our own pleasure. There's great pleasure that the Spirit of God brings to our lives. But He's been given to us to bear witness to Jesus Christ. Now, I'm going to diverge a little bit, but it's Applicable at this point. This is for you mothers, what I'm about to say. And for you would-be mothers. Some of you are yet to be mothers, and someday, perhaps you will be. We read from the book of Second Timothy, chapter 1, verses 5 and 6, Paul, who had, in a sense, adopted Timothy. He had no sons of his own, but he had a spiritual son, among others, This man, Timothy, was that son. And he says, I have been reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother, Lois, and in your mother, Eunice. And now I'm convinced lives in you also. And then he goes on to talk about that a little later in the third chapter. Where he says, as for you, I want you to continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of. Because you know those from whom you learned it. Now, what did he learn from those people? And who were those people? Who were his teachers? His grandmother and his mother were his teachers. His father was a non-believer. His grandmother and his mother. And what did he learn? He goes on to explain that. How from infancy... You have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation by faith in Jesus Christ. The Bible that he knew, the Old Testament, had been taught to Timothy from the word go. Thank you, mothers, for the investment that you have made in your children. Spending time... Not simply nurturing them emotionally and relationally, as important as that is. Very important. But also nurturing them spiritually. Helping them to know about the Lord. Helping them not to have a moment in their memory where they would say, I never remember not knowing about Jesus. Awesome what God does. I was reading about Edith Schaeffer the wife and partner in missionary work of the great Francis Schaeffer, and she said she would listen to people give their testimonies at times, and she said she could never remember a time when she didn't know the Lord. Now that is difficult for Baptists to deal with sometimes because we've got to say you've got to have a moment in time that you can remember the exact place at that time when you got saved. Well, I remember myself, so I'm sort of over in that camp. But I do know occasionally people don't remember the exact occasion or moment, like Edith Schaefer, who was used mightily by God, mightily by God in the course of her 90 years of serving the Lord. She didn't remember. She wished she could have a testimony that was spectacular, like she had heard people who had come out of a life of dreadful sin. But she said as she grew older, she said, It really didn't matter. I knew Jesus now. I knew Him now. I knew Him then. I knew Him. Well, this young man, Timothy, knew the Lord. Why? Because of the ministry of his grandmother and his mother. Let me give you a few illustrations out of church history, recent church history, I might add. I'll begin with an illustration from the life of Amy Carmichael. Amy Carmichael spent over 50 years without any break. She never returned to Great Britain, her homeland. Never returned there for over 50 years as she served the Lord in India. Now, this was at the turn of the 20th century. This is like 1901 and thereabouts. Man, that was tough. It's tough in India today. I've been there, and it's the toughest place I've ever been in my life in terms of cultural shock. I mean, it's just so different. And what we know about her is... Something happened in 1901 that changed her focus. She knew the Lord. She loved the Lord. She shared the Lord. But her right-hand person, who was Indian herself, brought a seven-year-old girl named Prina to her. This girl had been dropped off by her mother at a nearby Hindu temple to be devoted to the God that that temple represented. And what that meant was this child would become prostituted in order to earn money for the priests who worked for that God. Somehow or another, this little girl had escaped. And she came and she was introduced to Amy Carmichael, who had no children. And Amy immediately was drawn to her. Within three months, there were four other girls who were added before her life ended. There were 900 children who were rescued by her ministry known as the Donavore Fellowship. Now, here's a word for you women who do not have children. Mother's days are painful for women in most cases who do not have children, who have wanted to have children, who have had a child stillborn, or you miscarried a child, or you've lost a child. It's painful to think about the absence of that child or would-be child in your life. You can adopt children. And I'm not talking about going through the courts. I'm talking about spiritually adopt children. This church is filled with younger women who need a godly influence in their lives. Someone who can nurture them as a spiritual mother. And many of you have been called by God. I would say practically all of you have what it is necessary, if you have the Spirit of God, to just rise up and embrace these young women who need a godly influence in their lives. So this is a Mother's Day for some of you who've never had a child of your own. You've got children that are going to be with you forever if you do what Paul did. Let me give you a second illustration. Amy Carmichael. Let me go to Fanny Crosby. Anybody know that name? If you know your hymnal, you'll know that 15 of the songs in our current hymnal, and this is not a complete research project I did, but as I was looking in the back, I think she's the one who's composed most of the hymns which are in our hymnal. She has the record of having most. There are 15 of her works in our hymnal. There's some arrangers who have more than 15 works. But let me tell you about Fanny J. Crosby. At the age of six weeks, she had some kind of eye irritation, and a doctor prescribed some sort of medicine that left her blind. She lived to be 94. She never could see. She was blind all of her life, except for the first six weeks. Add to that the fact that her father died before she was a year old, leaving her an orphan, and her mother, whose name was Mercy Crosby, as a widow. The grandmother's name was Interestingly, Eunice kind of rings a bell, does it? The mother of Timothy, not the grandmother. Lois was the grandmother, but Eunice. And Eunice and Mercy teamed up together because Mercy had to do housework. She was a domestic servant all of her life. She worked and worked and worked to support. She never remarried. She worked to support Fanny. Fanny J. Crosby. Tremendous person. It's estimated that she wrote 9,000 hymns, 9,000 hymns. One hymn which she wrote entitled Safe in the Arms of Jesus, it's not in our hymnal, or at least I could not find it. The circumstances of its writing are very interesting and also telling. She was in her Manhattan apartment. She heard a knock on her door. She opened the door. An acquaintance and friend of hers, actually a colleague, in music, Howard Doan. He was not a lyricist. He was the one who would do the music portion. He came he said, I have this tune that I believe the Lord's given to me. I have 45 minutes before I need to board a train in New York City, remember, and I need you to give me some lyrics. And he began to hum the tune and as she listened, she says... That says safe in the arms of Jesus to me. And she said, you stay here for a moment. She went to her bedroom, fell on her knees, asked God to give her the words, and within 30 minutes she had composed and recited these words to Mr. Doan. He wrote them down, made it to his train, was not late getting to his destination. Fanny Crosby was an incredibly positive person. And I know it's because of the Word of God that was invested in her. Remember, her grandmother and her mother, Eunice and Mercy, invested in her. And they invested the Word of God in her. By the time she was ten, she could could quote Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. How's that? Can you even quote nine verses of Scripture? Nine books of Scripture, she could quote. And this inherently builds you and me up. The Bible says whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scripture, we might have hope. Do you need a little lift every once in a while? I need it every day, many times throughout the day. And do you know where I get it? It's not from somebody slapping me on the back saying, you're going to make it. It's not that. It's through the Word of God. That's how we can overcome sadness. She never hinted at sadness except one time. She lived so long. Remember I told you she was 94 when she died? She lived so long she had to write two autobiographies. She wrote one probably when she was about 65 or 70, thinking the near end was near. She lived another 25 or 30 years. So when she was 94, she wrote this biography. And the day before she died, she composed her last hymn, I might add. This woman was sharp to the end. That recommends memorizing Scripture. That's not the good motivation, but it sure would help a lot of us. But the one point of sadness that she refers to in that second biography was the death of her only child. Her only daughter, Frances, died in infancy. She never spoke of it publicly. And she never connected it to that hymn. But it's largely agreed upon by those who knew her that that song was what God used to help her through that period of great darkness in her life. Now, here's the last person. I love talking about these women, godly women. Thank God for women who love the Lord and love their children and adopt spiritual children Ann Graham-Lotts. Does anyone know Ann Graham-Lotts? She's the second of Billy and Ruth Bell Graham's five children. And she, my humble opinion, is the best preacher of all the five. Tremendous preacher of the gospel, teacher of God's Word. Ann Graham-Lotts. When she was a young mother, she married at about the age of 20. And she said this. She said, I began to drift from God after I got married as a new mother and a new wife. And it was because, you know, small children. Any of you got small children? Small house. All the busyness of a housewife. And then she went on to say, I sought the Lord in the Scripture at that time. And then she went on to say after that, I began to study the Bible for myself at that time. Her mother, Ruth Belgram, would spend on average six months a year alone raising those children while Billy was globetrotting with the Gospel, doing the work of God. And Anne said that she never remembered her mother uttering a word of complaint. There was no bitterness And she said she knows why. Because she would go by her room at night, her mother's room, when she was still single, living at home, and peek in the door, and there was Ruth Graham with her Bible open, studying the Word of God. She said, while Daddy was away doing the business of the Lord, Mama was at home. This woman, Anne Graham-Lotz, after digging into the Scripture, she began her own ministry. Angels, and in the word angels are the three letters of her monogram, Anne Graham-Lotz. God blessed her ministry at the height of its success in the late 90s. She had a year of calamity. Remember what the Bible talks about us who know Christ? We're going to have trials in this life, Right? When we start following Christ seriously, don't be surprised when opposition rears its ugly head. It happened in her life. A hurricane swept through the area, devastating her home and the homes of many others as well. Then her husband's dental office was burned to the ground. Then her only son contracted cancer. Then her mother's health began to just completely fall off the map. It was a terrible time. And you know what she said? She said, I went back to the Scriptures again in a way I never had before. And she wrote a book, Just Give Me Jesus, as a result of her studying the Gospel of John in particular. And it opened a whole new arena for her to preach the Gospel. And many came to Christ. I hope you see the point, ladies. Mothers and grandmothers are incredibly important to their children. Don't miss this opportunity God's given you to evangelize your children. Tell them about Jesus. Here's the third group, and we're close to finishing here. In verse 12, things into which angels long to look. So we've got three enthusiastic groups here prophets, right? Evangelists, and now angels. Two words I'd like to focus on the word long, it means to crave. Some of you are craving something right now. You're craving a coffee from Dunkin' Donuts right now. You said, oh, I wish you'd hurry up and hush. we got to get out of here and get to the brunch place. It's a busy day for Mother's Day. We want to get out early. Come on, Pastor. Get it done so we can do our thing. A craving. That's the idea. The angels craved to look into this matter of salvation. They still don't understand it because they're not human. They have not fallen. Now, we know there's a category of fallen angels known as demons, but these are those who are not fallen. They crave to look. And this is the word that John the Gospel writer uses in John chapter 20 and verses 5 and 11. You remember that John the Apostle and Peter ran to the tomb of Jesus. John got there first, probably indicating not only was he in better shape, and faster, but he was probably younger. He got there before Peter. He did not go into the tomb where the stone had been rolled away from. He waited till Peter got there. And the Bible says Peter looked. It's the same word, looked into the tomb. Do you know what it's like, don't you, when you go from light into darkness? It takes a while for your pupils to dilate to adjust. Right? He looked into. The angels have that kind of desire. It's still a little blurry to them. They're wanting to understand. It was also used in verse 11 for Mary Magdalene. As she went, she had the same experience. Angels long to look at these things that we are privy to. We, fallen human beings, are privy to. Well, the other possible response is indifference as opposed to intensity. Intensity. And it's unacceptable. Revelation chapter 2 and 3 talk about this. Revelation 3 talks about the pariah of indifference, apathy, complacency in the life of a so-called believer. It says that you are neither hot or cold. I wish you were one or the other, Jesus said, because I'm about to puke you out of my mouth. That's what he says. Lukewarmness, indifference, complacency, apathy. These things don't play well with our Lord. When I was in high school and then afterwards when I was working with high school students through Young Life, I went to a lot of ball games. Basketball, football. At some point... During those contests, the cheerleaders on one side probably at halftime would say, We've got spirit. How about you? Remember that? And there's this contest back and forth for the bragging rights about which school had the greater spirit. Here's the question. The prophets say, We've got spirit. What about you? The evangelists, We've got spirit. What about you? The angels, Hey, we wish we had it. We're enthusiastic, but we don't get it. But you have the possibility of getting it. These three groups unite to give us such a challenge. We, above all the created order, are highly favored to be recipients of such a great salvation. Jesus says this in Matthew thirteen seventeen. He says, I truly say to you, many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it. And to hear what you hear and did not hear it. This is phenomenal what is ours in the form of the gospel. Familiarity has bred contempt among us in the church of Jesus Christ. Does this salvation that we are considering in the book of 1 Peter so far leave you untouched and unmoved? Are you bored by this great gospel? May God have mercy on us for our casual attitude toward the salvation that is ours in Jesus Christ. This gospel is a mystery, not in the sense that it's unsolvable, but it's unrevealed to some of you. The Lord has spoken to you perhaps today seeking to unveil your eyes so that you can understand who Jesus is and know of your need for Him. In Revelation chapter 2, as Paul, uh, Jesus rather speaks to the church at Ephesus, He says to them, Remember the height from which you have fallen and repent. Has there been a moment in your life when your joy, your enthusiasm for the gospel was greater than now? Well then, you need to be like the Puritans who said preach the gospel to yourself every day. Remember what we see in 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 3 through 12, and apply it to your life. And lastly, a question found in the book of Hebrews, chapter 2, verse 3. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Would you pray with me? Lord, we confess to You today that we have become a bit complacent, if not a lot, complacent, indifferent about the gospel. And we're asking you, Holy Spirit, to convict us and guide us and draw us to you anew. We want to heed your word when you say, we have the reputation of being alive, but we are dead, and wake up and get right with You, Lord. Please, Lord, move in our hearts. Empower us to understand and to share this great message with others. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.